audio. Welcome to Doc Talk, a weekly podcast featuring Monument Health physicians addressing medical topics. Tune into your health with Monument Health. Hi again, and welcome to another edition of Doc Talk with Monument Health. My name is Mark Houston, and back with me is Dr. Katie Croft, a gynecologic oncologist at Monument Health Cancer Care Institute. Glad to have you back, Katie. Thank you so much for having Our me again. Our first conversation was so enlightening that uh, I'm still kind of coming down off it a little. <laughs> so I'm, I'm ready for this one now, too. Um, really quick, um, you're you're from originally from Georgia. Yes. You were a military brat. You nope. know Actually, um, my, my dad, had, Your been, dad he right. had been, and that's how they ended up in Augusta, Georgia, where I grew up. Um, and I was there for most of my life until um, I started residency in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I've been migrating to get to snow. <laughs> so, God, you're the first person, I think, that's ever said that from down south, migrating, <laughs> migrating up to get to the snow. And mountains. And Yeah, that's true, too. It's very flat. <laughs> where I live. <laughs> us, us that were born into it, we we love it. We we do like the cold, but very few people say they've come for the snow. But you do. You have those are your activities. That's stuff you like to do when you're not. When I'm not in the operating room or clinic. Yeah, yes. when I'm not doing doctor like right. things. Um, I my my husband and I both like to rock climb quite a bit. We just got a puppy, and so we have rock climbing has been on pause. <laughs> I know you can't do it now. She's five and a half months old, and I did not realize what I was signing up for. She's wonderful and she's super cute. I just want her to stop biting. <laughs> Where's your? Uh, have you? Do you have a favorite place to rock climb around here? Do you have a um, place you've you've been to? You're like, oh, this was great. We 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 usually have been going to the Seven Seas area behind yeah. um, Mount Rushmore. That's okay. where we've typically been going. Um, I know Spearfish Canyon's supposed to be amazing. Mm-hmm. We just we haven't been here all that long, and then we got the dog. So this summer we did did very little outdoor climbing, um, but I'm, I have to be good at tying knots, right? Because I, I, yes, I'm a surgeon. Do. I'm yes. good at tying knots, and that's what I keep reminding my partner every time. She's like, "You have such dangerous hobbies." I'm like, "I'm very good at tying knots." Right, because that's one thing we're going to be talking about today. Uh, part of this too, yeah, uh, is 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 tying things for sure. Um, <laughs> you uh, last time we talked kind of the overall anatomy um, mm-hmm. uh, in the in 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 what you do as a doctor, yeah. and I think uh, the two big issues that a lot of women worry about and why we're going to talk about this today, uh, ovarian cancer and uh, endometrial cancer, mm-hmm. correct? So let's start with the endometrial cancer. Yes. I think that's kind of where you wanted to begin yeah. today. Um, how does something like this pop up? So endometrial cancer, and again, back to an anatomy primer, um, <laughs> the endometrium is the inside lining of the uterus, and it's where babies grow. It's where the placenta implants, and it's the part of the uterus that sheds every month when a woman has a period. Um, and that's the most common cancer I take care of is endometrial cancer. I take care of um, precancers of the endometrium and full-blown cancers of the endometrium. Um, and the pr- com- most common way that they present is with bleeding after menopause. So there, there has been a rumor in every place I have lived that that your period can restart after you've gone through menopause several years out. And it seems to be a commonly held belief that is not true at all. So if there's one thing anyone, and this is kind of a little bit of a soapbox moment right now. <laughs> go for but, it. But um, if you bleed after you go through menopause, it doesn't necessarily mean you've got endometrial cancer, but it's the first thing that you've got to rule out. And it could be something totally benign going on, like a polyp, or sometimes the lining of the uterus is just so thin after menopause that you can have bleeding from it. But please, please, please don't ignore postmenopausal bleeding. It's not normal to bleed after menopause. And if you do, um, then 
it can be usually evaluated in the office, usually with a biopsy of the inside lining of the uterus or an ultrasound, depending on what your doctor would recommend. But I tend to err on the side of getting tissue. Um, that's in part because I'm a surgeon and an oncologist. Sure. But, um, and I always want to rule out the most dangerous thing. But if it's picked up early, most endometrial cancers can be treated with surgery alone. And so that's one of the reasons why, if you're listening to this and you've just never heard of endometrial cancer, it's actually not uncommon. It's the most common cancer I take care of. Um, but it doesn't get as much press because a lot of times it's diagnosed early stage. Now, like all cancers, it comes in a couple of flavors. And the most common type of endometrial cancer um, is one that tends to be associated with um, with obesity. So having carrying extra weight can increase your risk of developing an endometrial cancer. Having uncontrolled diabetes is another thing that can increase the risk. I've noticed in both of these conversations I've had with you that diabetes plays a lot into uh, what can happen with 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 female. It definitely does. Yeah. And um, there's another condition called polycystic ovary syndrome that some may have heard of on this. Um, and it's it's a, a syndrome that increases your risk of having diabetes. There's insulin oh, okay. um, insulin resistance that comes with it. And with it, women don't ovulate regularly, so they don't have regular periods. So that's another risk factor for developing endometrial cancer is if if you haven't been through menopause yet and your normal cycles, you only have two a year or one a year, which happens for some women, that's something that's really important to talk to your OBGYN about because um, if that lining is not shedding regularly, if you're not ovulating and then going through the process of having a period, you actually can be, it sets you up for developing these um, precancerous growths and even endometrial cancer. So I have diagnosed endometrial cancer in women under the age of 30. Um, even though we classically think of it happening after a woman's been through menopause, and the average age of menopause in the U.S. is 51. Um, and a lot of those have been associated with polycystic ovary syndrome because the inside lining of the uterus just continues to grow and grow. Um, and those, can't, those, if they're diagnosed early, we don't have to do a hysterectomy for it. There are, there are a lot of different ways that it can be managed, and sometimes we can treat it with hormones to get that inside lining of the uterus to respond. And those hormones are actually a Mirena IUD, which is birth control. It actually can treat some endometrial cancers. Um, and then progesterone is the other thing that can treat some endometrial cancers that can be taken by mouth. They both have progesterone in it. I think of um, estrogen and progesterone as being yin and yang. <laughs> um, and so polycystic ovary syndrome, you have kind of excess estrogen. It's the same thing actually that happens um, when we carry extra weight, our fat cells make a weak form of estrogen. And so it causes a hormone imbalance. And basically you have more estrogen. And when you have extra estrogen, you need progesterone to balance it out. That's what keeps the lining from overgrowing. Um, it's the same thing that, you know, with hormone replacement therapy, 20, 30 years ago, we were giving just plain estrogen. And we really realized that you need progesterone too if you have a uterus because it protect, protects the endometrial lining. So that's the other thing is if you're on hormone replacement therapy, and your doctor, you have a uterus still in, and your doctor has prescribed estrogen and also progesterone to make sure you're taking the progesterone because it can, without progesterone, it's basically just adding fuel to your endometrial lining. It can make it overgrow. So those are kind of the big pieces um, for that. So a, a hysterectomy isn't always recommended for this type of cancer? No, for women who want to have children. Mm -hmm. So I have I have young patients in their 20s, late 20s, early 30s, who um, maybe they struggled to get pregnant because they weren't having consistent menstrual cycles. They weren't ovulating regularly. And in the workup for their 
for trying to get pregnant, they found out that they actually had a precancer or a cancer of the mm-hmm. inside lining of the uterus. In those circumstances, presuming that we do an MRI and prove that it's not invading into the muscle layer, um, then we actually can at least do a trial of hormone treatment um, to see if we can get it to respond. And there are, I've, I've had patients who've, in fellowship at least, who were able to conceive after that. Um, oh, wow. And so it's it's not that it's impossible. It is mm-hmm. harder to harder to maintain fertility after sure, having this kind of, of diagnosis. Um, but it is it is something that's possible. Um, when when they come in and they have these symptoms and they suspect or you suspect, what's what's kind of the process that that they have to go through when they're there with you? What what happens then when they're when they're talking to you and you're like, all right, we're going to look. Then what's the, what's the process? So the the process, and actually most of the time, because I'm I'm a cancer doctor, a lot of times they've already come to me with mm-hmm. a diagnosis. But occasionally I'll get a referral from from a family practice doctor who doesn't do um, biopsies in the community, who's gotten an ultrasound in a patient who's been through menopause, and the endometrial lining looks pretty thick. So that's kind of the start as an ultrasound in and a lot of cases? It, a lot of times that's what's ordered before. I, I tend to be more of an advocate for if you're bleeding after menopause, if you can get a biopsy done the mm. day that they come in, that's the fastest way to get a diagnosis. Okay. Um, and so there are times when the cervix, and I think we talked the last time looking in there, you look at a donut, basically right. the center part is where a really thin straw, it's only four millimeters in size actually slides in through and it does cause cramping pain and if I have a patient who can't tolerate that in the office then I would get an ultrasound I kind of reflex to the ultrasound as a backup and really want to get tissue so I can make a diagnosis about what's going on Um, and so that that biopsy is usually what I would recommend as kind of a first step but if it's going to be really uncomfortable or a patient's not comfortable with it then an ultrasound is kind of the the next line so um, is there a way, and I guess we can kind of tie this in, because the second thing we'd like to talk to you is, is about the ovarian cancer, which, yeah. of course, I think most women are, that's that's the one you'll hear all about. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that, uh, you know, is is seems to be the, the scariest in it's here, It's the terrifying too. one yeah. of them, although some endometrial cancers can also fall in that category, oh, too. Oh, I'm sure. The, the, what you had mentioned, though, was the, the, the endometrial can be caught much earlier mm-hmm. if, if they come in and they're paying attention. Yep. The ovarian one is worrisome, yes. correct? Yes. It's it's heart it's it's heart cancer. So a Pap test only screens for cervical cancer. Um, we don't have a screening test for endometrial cancer, but usually you bleed and you go in. And you're like, this is not normal. Right. We're gonna do something about it. <laughs> the problem for ovary is that the symptoms are super vague. So it's changes in bowel function, early satiety, meaning you got full a little quicker than you would expect. Abdominal bloating your pants fit a little bit tighter. And I think almost every woman who, if you're listening to this right now, if you've had a period and gone through a monthly cycle, this is something that like most women deal with. Um, and I think all women kind of tend to sweep it under the rug of, well, I must have gained a little bit of weight. And most of the time, it's probably constipation or probably that. But it, um, one of the things I think I mentioned the last time we talked was, if it's something that's happening and you're doing all of the things that should be fixing the problem, and it's still happening and getting worse, then that's really when you need to go to a doctor and um, and tell your doctor what's been happening and what you've been doing and saying that it's not getting better. Um, because it's vague, 
bowel symptoms with bloating and constipation and things like that. I've had a lot of patients who've been diagnosed with IBS and have been tried on like 10 different medications um, trying to get their bowels to move. And then they get a CT scan done after four or five months. And then they have this huge mass in their pelvis and their belly's full of fluid. There's usually some tipping point. And I'm not saying that every patient who has constipation needs a CT scan. That's not the case at all. Ovarian cancer is not that common. It's one in 80 women is their life is your lifetime risk of developing it compared with breast cancer, which is one in eight. But it's something that, um, you know, just to be aware of, because if you're having those symptoms and they're continuing and they're not getting better, then mentioning to your doctor, like, I'm doing all the right things and none of this is getting better, and it might prompt them to get a CT scan. Okay. Um, um, now, that kind of having that whole background on that now, um, the, the question when people are listening to a podcast like this and you've kind of explained it, and they're like, oh, my goodness, that is scary. Um, there are, are there ways that this can be prevented? So what can be done for Because it kind of ties in both of them, don't mm-hmm. they? Okay. Yeah, a little bit. So um, for endometrial cancer, healthy diet and exercise are really the best things that you can do to decrease your risk, mm-hmm. at least of the most common type of endometrial cancer. Making sure diabetes is under good control. If you have PCOS, making sure that you're on some flavor of progesterone that's thinning <laughs> right. that lining out. Um, ovary cancer, one of the, the strategies that we have is actually taking the full fallopian tube out. So you'll, you probably will notice if you talk to your doctor about having a tubal ligation, if you're done having children, that they're going to recommend something called a bilateral salpingectomy, which means removing the entire fallopian tube. And that's because we actually think most ovary cancers come from the fallopian tubes. So there's these fingers on the end of the fallopian tube called the fimbria. That is, that's what catches the egg every month that you mm-hmm. ovulate and gets taken up in the fallopian tube. And so that's actually where, where most of the precancers from ovarian cancer come from. We actually have found those in patients who were at high risk. So if you have family history of ovarian cancer, the other thing I want to mention is making sure that your doctor knows about it because if your family member hasn't been tested for genetics, about 20% of ovarian cancers are actually have a hereditary component, and the most common of those are BRCA1 and BRCA2, which you may have seen in the news before. Um, they're gene mutations that increase your risk for ovarian and breast cancer. And those patients, we actually recommend taking out the tubes and ovaries, and in some cases, the uterus as well, when you're done having babies. Um, because that is the best way to decrease your risk of having um, of having cancer. In families that don't have a history of ovarian cancer, that don't have a BRCA mutation, the, one of the best things you can do is actually getting your tube completely taken out when you're when you're done having kids. I w- well, I was so surprised that there because everybody you know you always hear you know my tubes are tied uh-huh. right. So that's what everybody thinks of. Um, and and then you mentioned well, there's a second way, which is what you just described, mm-hmm. is removing the whole thing. Yeah. Um, that is uh, do it do it are is this something you feel like a lot of women they they should know but do they know i mean do they know that there are two choices there are two options there? i i think that it's something that's changed quite a bit so at the beginning of my residency which started about eight years ago we were doing traditional tubal ligation which at that point was doing a clip on each tube or taking a section of the tube out at the time of c-section or after a vaginal delivery And over the course of the last eight years, we've really transitioned to doing more and more salpingectomies, or at least that's what I've seen over the course of this. Just that quickly in eight years. Mm -hmm. And that's because there's really been, as we've learned more and more about genetics and we've learned more and more about where these cancers come from, it changes 
kind of what we recommend. Um, and so that conversation, your your do, your um, OBGYN, if they're discussing with you the idea of having your tubes out, they're going to talk with you about taking the whole tube out. Um, and that is, it's important to know that that's not reversible. There's no way of reversing it if your full right. tube's been removed. Um, but typically they will discuss that with you. And that is the preferred way of doing a tubal ligation because of the decreased ovarian cancer risk with it. Is there age ranges for it? Is there some that... You know, if, if you're over a certain age, well, maybe not. You know, because you hear that a lot with prostate cancers. If you're over the age of 70 or 75, it's such a slow-growing cancer that is, – is it similar here? So or they... I wouldn't go in to a 75-year-old and take out their fallopian tubes just to go take them out because right. you're not doing it for contraception at that point. Um, if there's a reason to go in and take their ovaries out – you best believe I'm taking their sure. tubes out too. <laughs> I'm not leaving those behind um, okay. because they can become troublemakers down the line. Yeah. Um, but um, anytime that we do a hysterectomy, so like if, if someone is 35 years old and we don't have a reason to take out their ovaries, but their uterus has been acting a fool, so to speak, with tons mm -hmm. of bleeding and other reasons, we're, typically we'll take their fallopian tubes out at that time because it does decrease the risk and you're not using your fallopian tubes if your uterus is out. Okay. So those are the times that I, I think we would consider at most. And then just making sure to discuss it with your doctor when, right. when you're discussing permanent permanent birth control method options. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Katie, again, uh, thank you so much for coming in and talking about this. This is, uh, again, for me, obviously, um, you know, I've, I, I've just, it's so fun to learn about all of these things that guys don't generally think about. But if, if you're married, if you have mm -hmm. girlfriends, if, and, and if you can, you know, be like, well, you've talked to them and they've had these symptoms and you've listened to this podcast. Now you can be like, now, wait a minute. I heard Dr. Croft say that this could be, so let's go check it out. It's yeah. just the knowledge is power. It's such a silly <laughs> thing, but it's so true. No, it really is. Katie Croft, uh, gynecologic oncologist at Monument Health Cancer Care Institute. I hope to have you back and let's talk more about this because it's fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much. Doc Talk with Monument Health is recorded live at Homeslice Studios, hosted by Mark Houston, edited by Russ Hatton, engineered by Chris Jaquist, and produced by Kelsey Kinney and Rob Henry. 